Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode from the archives. At the point at which this episode is published, I'm out on expedition in Alaska with Tommy Caldwell, Alex Honnold and Renan Ozturk, directing a film for National Geographic. I didn't want to have to take a break from weekly releases, so we thought we'd share some of my favourite episodes from early on in the life of the podcast that may or may not have been heard by those of you who joined the party late. This episode was first released in June 2020 and features Ian Miller. Ian is a kayaker and a rock climber. His speciality is sea kayaking around the west coast of Ireland, climbing first ascents on sea stacks. It's about as adventurous a life as it's possible to live, whilst also having a permanent home base. This episode is a testament to the possibilities of a life of adventure close to home, but it also has a much deeper side to it. Ian spent the majority of his adult life in the Merchant Navy, and the toll on his mental health was enormous. But sat in the back of a van in Donegal, Ian just opened up and kept nothing back. This episode is a deep reflection on the tolls of an institutionalised life that one feels trapped in, and how an eventual escape and reinvention can make all the difference. Okay, over to Ian Miller. telling me where we are and what we've been doing for the last few weeks, why we're here. We're in a place in Western Donegal called the Rosses. It's a, like a local name for this area and it's pretty much Western Donegal on the northwest coast of Ireland. Uh, and what we've been doing is we've paddled out, oh, we, we got out to Oe Island and we've put up a, a good number of new routes, uh, hard new routes on unclimbed and sea cliffs and unclimbed lines and just generally had the best time. Perfect. And who are you and what do you do? I guess, can you introduce yourself? Um, my name is Ian Miller and I'm a, a full-time professional sea stack climber. <laughs> uh, according to Red Bull, the only one in the world. <laughs> uh, I, I have as much fun as possible. My fun involves paddling out to sea, usually on my own, looking for unclimbed rock, looking for unclimbed sea stacks, finding them, climbing them, and and documenting it in PDFs and YouTube and just, in general, creating content that I'm doing. Uh, I'm very fortunate to live here because the likes of you guys coming and filming is happening over time, and this place is eventually going to become a lot busier in terms of climbing and kayak and outdoors and, and, and general uh, tourism. But at the moment, and certainly 15 so years ago when I started playing here, uh, it was totally unheard of and unknown. And it's, it's good to see the development of it. But to answer your question, I visit the coast and I play. Nice. And we'll definitely come back to Donegal and to Sea Stacks and how you ended up here. 
but can you begin by telling me where you're from and what it was like growing up where you grew up? I, I, well, I'm obviously Scottish, uh, although I kind of think I sound Irish now. I, I'm definitely Scottish, not Sean Connery Scottish. I'm not Orkney, the, the north of Scotland. Uh, and I grew up in two or three different places, Danoon and the, down the Clyde, uh, Dundee and in Orkney. I uh, moved back to Orkney in my 20s and I was there for a, a decade. Why did you end up going back to Orkney? I was deep sea. Uh, I was a uh, merchant navy. Uh, I was a ship's engineer and a job came up that my grandfather had. And my grandfather had long retired, but his predecessor was retiring. And a little company, uh, Orkney Ferries, got in contact with me and says, we've got a job for you. Now, I was actually, I guess, crossing the equator someplace in the world at the time, and it came by telex, this is before emails, and not before the internet, but certainly before communication like that. And it said, got a job for you in Orkney, when are you home? So I went home. Uh, and I sailed the Orkney ferries for 10, 9, 10 years. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And so before that, you joined the Merchant Navy aged how old? Uh, 19. Oh, wow. As yeah. what? Well, you join as a cadet, as like a trainee, and you do a few years at college, and then you join your first ship, and then you work your way through the ranks of engineers. So I was fifth engineer for a trip, then fourth engineer for a year, and third engineer, then second engineer, and then, good heavens, the lofty position of chief engineer, where the world weighs heavy on your shoulders and everybody looks at you for an answer. And what was life like on ships then? How much time did you spend? I would... I. <laughs> When I was deep sea, then I would spend up to, to say, six to eight months uh, on a ship. And in those types of ships, you were you would get a telex to say where you were going. And then when you were kind of got there, you'd get a telex to say where you were going next. So you just went from place, to, it's called tramp charters. So you went from place to place. And the people in Monaco that ran the, the half dozen ships that they were working on, uh, pretty much from behind the scenes getting best prices for bulk delivery and all that sort of thing so we just travelled the world uh, going from place to place carrying different bits and pieces it was it's quite surreal looking back at it now because those days at that time don't really exist anymore the world has changed in such a way that certain types of behaviour and just in general I'm going to call it camaraderie wouldn't perhaps be a, it certainly isn't socially acceptable if you know what I mean there was a lot of drinking there was a lot of stuff went on in the the poorer countries there was just in general shenanigans and being a ship's engineer and being in charge of people and trying to run the plant you tend to lear learn a lot, a lot more about people you didn't realise at the time but you were learning life skills that I'm certainly never going to get the opportunity thankfully need to to go there again but the life skills you learn from dealing with pretty much a group of men uh, away from home for long extended periods it's it's scenarios that don't exist for example even to this day I will very very rarely ask somebody a personal question I just I haven't asked you any personal questions I haven't asked any of the guys Kevin or all the people I just don't do it because on a ship asking a personal question is pretty much one of the biggest no-nos because nobody unless it's invited wants to talk about home 
So asking a personal question, you're 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 perhaps making someone go home in their head. And yeah, you just don't do that. That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's only I just I, it's it's over the last few years, and I've watched it. I watched you guys the way you would speak to say Michelle, and you'd ask her a question about I don't know something random like Belfast or her parents or something, and I'm sitting there thinking, whoa. Can't do that. <laughs> and even now, even now, and that's a little facet. It's institutionalised behaviour. So, just a little, a little aside sort of thing. It's just something I noticed years ago, and it's it's never going to change. I don't think. It must be very odd watching the way we've been because. Obviously... Oh, absolutely! It's like everybody knows each other, and it's like, yeah, it's 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 odd. I've, I've, even if not, I've not been at sea since two thousand uh, two thousand and four, two thousand and three, sort of thing. Even now, it just yeah, you cross the line there, man. Well, <laughs> in my head, and I don't know if, even if that exists anymore. And it will do in deep sea ships, but nowadays most it's it's very rare you get Western Europeans. Uh, pretty much, pretty much white people working on ships. The last ship I sailed on was uh, pretty much the captain and chief engineer were the only white ones, and I, I'm saying color of skin because it. It kind of goes to the Filipinos and Indonesians, uh, and then the officers kind of drifted further and further east until companies were getting their officers from Romania and parts of uh, ex-Russian states. We were too expensive, so the Irish, the British, the Norwegians, the Germans, too expensive. And over time, we just disappeared, if you know what I mean, from the ships. And that's when you know things are, are going, not going pear-shaped, because it's good, I'm glad I left. But yeah, just I don't even know if that world exists anymore. I mean, when I when I was at sea, all the crew were all British. So my first ship was uh, T J Harrison's out of Liverpool, and all the crew were Scousers. And not to say anything bad about Scousers, but they were all characters. Every single one of them, a few ex submariners, just lots of guys with uh, like teardrop tattoos in their cheeks, and you just think these guys are just yeah. This is yeah, pretty salt of the earth, absolute gentleman, but gentleman in a different way. Just yeah, it was, it was really good days that I don't think exists anymore. So, age nineteen, what was the draw? The draw was my grandfather was a chief engineer, with and he worked his way through a very different merchant navy from me. So he was he was what would be would be considered uh, a steam queen. There's two types of engines, steam and diesel, uh, reciprocating diesel or steam turbines. But my grandfather came through reciprocating steam, which is like a diesel engine, but powered by steam. And they don't exist anymore. I think the Waverley is the last ocean-going steamship, reciprocating steamship in the world. That's up in Glasgow in the Clyde. And the draw was, <sighs> I kind of had to do it because... My grandfather's gone now, obviously, uh, but we were the same person. And you only realise that when you get a bit older, even to the point where it's really strange because we were the same person in lots of ways, obviously two generations apart. But as I got older and got more experience as an engineer, we realised that we would never, ever sit in a room and discuss engines because... Oh man, we had difference of opinions, and it was really good. 
because the first time we actually talked about engines, there's a thing called the UMS, it's called unmanned machine space. And in a modern ship, and we're talking more than 20 years ago, the engineers took a watch overnight and you could go UMS. You could go to your cabin and sleep because all the alarms would go off in your cabin. You'd get a little buzzer and you'd go down and sort whatever it was out. In my grandfather's day, you would have half a dozen men in the engine room at all times, all touching things with the back of their hands to get vibrations and heat. And you still do that. It's still part of your, your walk around routines. But my grandfather's day, leaving the engine room was not a sacking offence. It was a hanging offence. And the first time me and him sat down and uh, another thing is he didn't he never drank since I was born. And I now know why, having been at sea, I get to see where, where that goes. And we sat down, just a cup of coffee and talking about shipping. And within 10 minutes, he was in the garage, absolutely raging. And I was sitting with my arms folded, not wanting to speak to him again about it. Because our, our, our like, way of running a ship had totally changed from his time to mine. And we never talked about shipping again for the next 12 years that he was still alive. Just it never came up in conversation. Even if someone tried to initiate it, we'd both sit in silence and not even look at each other. <laughs> So my, the draw was, I was destined to do it. I don't think I wanted to do it. It was not something I consciously thought, I want to go to sea. It just, it just happens. Like all the best things in life, they just occur. I guess to see whether it's conscious or not is a draw though, right? I mean, I don't know whether your love of the sea comes from spending 20 years on it or whether it... It's quite the opposite. And that, that's, that's, that's the irony of the situation. When I left the sea, uh, I vowed never... I would never have anything more to do with it. I didn't need to. And here we are. Yeah, it didn't quite play out. I made it? a conscious decision when I left shipping that I was going to have nothing more to do with the sea. And I meant in every aspect. You know what I mean? Great yeah. planning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I could go so many places with this. It's so interesting. Let's stick with the ships. So what was life like on board? If you're on a deep sea ship, and we're talking about days where you had the internet was 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 kind of there, but it it wasn't on ships. It wasn't at the stage. So we, we the only communication we had to show was VHF radio, the satellite phone, which was it doesn't sound much now, but it was twelve US dollars a minute. Now, doesn't sound much, but then you're talking about a lot of money. So the only time you'd you'd phone home from a ship was when you got to shore and you could be in Japan for say six hours and at home back in the UK or Ireland, wherever home is, wherever the, wherever your home was, the time zone's different. So you're phoning home at quarter past two in the morning to have a conversation and then you're going back across the Pacific to the US. So for the next 32 days, you're out of contact with no communications at all. I mean, it sounds odd nowadays. I mean, we're never far from our phones and people could phone you and all that sort of thing. So life on ship was very unusual in that you had the I don't want to sound like sexist or racist, but I'm gonna I'm gonna use terminology that would have been normal when you're at sea and nowadays is not acceptable. So for a start there was no women. There was the token females uh, that did a cadet ship and maybe got a job as a deck officer engineer and they were fantastic they were equal to the males in every way but they ended up getting pregnant and leaving shipping so females were exceptionally rare on ships 
and it was, so it was all males. You joined a ship and there was a female. It was really once, once or twice in a lifetime sort of thing. That was when I was at sea. So it was all males. And everybody on the ship, out of everybody there, nobody actually wanted to be there. So you could tell when people were joining the ship. It was like going to a funeral. And you could tell when you were leaving the ship because it was like a carnival. Everybody was just totally animated. And the strange thing is that if you were on a ship for eight months and you paid off with people, driving to the airport with them was the first time in eight months that you'd actually speak to them in any sort of human way. Because on the ship, you couldn't talk about home because you weren't at home and your family were. So bringing up home in a social setting in the bar, it just never happened. That, it, it just seems so alien the concept. It's not. It's if you if it's very similar, but it's not. But it's very similar in many respects to a long-term prisoner, because a long-term prisoner doesn't have the liberty, for different reasons, to a seafarer. But being at sea, you don't have your liberty. You do in certain respects. You're not in jail. The food can be quite good, and all you travel in the world. But if you're at sea for thirty-two days, crossing the Pacific, say from Japan to the Panama Canal. That's it. You've no, you've nothing you can do apart from, well, drink a lot of alcohol and do your job. Yes. Yeah. That's, and that's it, it. And it's not like you can go and get some personal space somewhere. I mean, you've got the places you can go. You've got your bedroom and you've got the deck, I guess. <sighs> bedroom. It's good, man. I like that. It's cabin. Yeah, we're, I'm now starting to get yeah. <laughs> If you said that on a ship, man, you would know you're a first trip cadet. I'm going to my bedroom and there'd be a whole, yeah, that'll be just, you're getting sent for the tartan paint for that, you know what I mean? In a long way. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, like I say, it's institutionalised behaviour and a ship is, is a function. It's a big piece of metal and everything has a function on it. So if you're not functioning, you're not there. So you do have a cabin. Uh, and once you, once you, you like, depends on the size of ship and depends on the demographic. Uh, and everyone's got their own cabin. Some of the ships, bigger ships, didn't crew be two to a cabin. That's the Filipino and Indonesian, the, uh, like the, the crew, both engine and deck. And all the officers and cadets would have their own cabin. So that's your personal space. And the general thing about your cabin was, I mean, once you were up the ranks, it was palatial, it was huge, but it was still a ship. So if I didn't want anybody to speak to me, I would shut my door, which indicates that I'm asleep. And when I wasn't asleep, I open the door and pull the curtain for privacy. So if the door's shut, the person's sleeping. Unless the ship's on fire, don't knock my door. And that's a general rule. Uh, you, you can be in a ship for almost six months, a year, whatever, and there's 20 people, 30 people, 40, whatever ship you're on, but you're in essence alone. So all seafarers spend a vast percentage of their life alone. And you hear people say that you could be alone and be in a room full of people. And if that's, if that's what it feels like at work in, say, a city, you can always leave that room and go down to some place like a climbing wall where you know you're going to get kindred spirits or you can go... You can always escape, but on a ship... There's no place to go. 
even if you wanted to, 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 which you do, you walk up to the bow, which can be like 120, 130, 200 meters away. These are enormous bits of metal. And when you get there on the bow of the ship, deep ocean, you have a moment where you just think, I'm in the middle of the ocean. But as soon as you turn round, you're looking back the 200 or whatever metres to the accommodation block and you make that walk back. <laughs> uh, a lot of times I, I would, well, I, I, always, I wouldn't say I trained, but it was the only thing, mountaineering and rock climbing, but specifically mountaineering and hill walking was the only thing that stopped me following suit. And what how it usually happens in, in, the, in shipping is you join your first ship and everything's fantastic. You get your qualifications and you get your first proper job. So you're now earning a lot of money compared to people your age ashore. And every time you come home from a ship, you're the guy with all the time in the world because you've now got two months, three months, and you've got so much money. So you've got time and money, and it's great because all your mates are all fantastic. They're they're not got much on, so we go and do things, we go climbing, we do whatever we want. And then as time progresses over the next couple of years, and this is a general thing for all seafarers, your mates drift away because they get married, they have children, they get jobs, they get promoted. They have real lives in the real world. And you come home, so much time and money, and there's nobody there. And that's when you realise you are now a seafarer. When all your old mates, they're still friends, but they've got so much else going on. They're taking the children to the piano lessons or football lessons and all that sort of thing. They can't go away for the weekend because blah, 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 blah. And you make a conscious decision to either leave the sea. This usually takes three years. To either leave the sea or you commit. And if you commit, your path is not so much nowadays because the Exxon Valdez and all the other spills and stuff and people driving boats into, into harbours and sinking. Most of these were caused by alcohol because alcohol was the great equaliser. So once you've reached and breached the realisation that at home everybody's left you, for good reasons, not, not bad reasons, that you become institutionalised. So when you join a ship, all you talk about is other ships. So all your stories involve... I remember the time I was on the Artesia. Who was the chief on that? And you, you just... Everything revolves around being at sea because it's a safe topic. Your alcohol consumption goes up and up and up. And I thankfully had mountaineering and hill walking at that time in which I wouldn't say I trained for, but it was a reason not to become a chronic alcoholic. And as I worked at sea longer and longer, everyone started to die around me because chronic alcoholics display very very sneaky behaviour. I view a chronic alcoholic as a world-class athlete in the same regard and actually in the same respect, which sounds really odd, but if you've got someone who can pack away a bottle and a half of whiskey in a 24-hour period and work four hours on, eight hours off and function, but yet pack that alcohol away, that's someone that's dedicated a lot of time to doing it. And in the latter years, pretty much everybody in the ship was of that nature. And then after the Exxon Valdez, uh, the US went what was called zero tolerance. So you couldn't have any alcohol in your system inside US waters. And alcohol was locked up 
in different parts of the world. And because the US did this, an awful lot of other companies followed suit. So in the time period for the year after zero tolerance became the norm, especially in the oil industry, everybody, I know personally 40 people that died, went home and died. Now why they went home and died was because on a ship, it's very institutionalized in that you know that when you knock off after your four hours, you've got eight hours. So you can do whatever you want in your eight hours. Nobody cares. Anything at all you want on the ship, as long as you turn two for your eight hours on. So a chronic alcoholic or a seafarer with experience knows when to draw the line. But if you don't have that line and you go home, they just, they just end themselves because they've got no reason to stop. And... That's that's what I tried. I, I I didn't I didn't try and avoid it. I, with hindsight, that's how I avoided it by having a reason that was nothing to do with seafaring, and that's why I'm here now doing this because it worked. <laughs> but it was so easy to follow into the the path and just yeah. You don't drink now, right? Oh, I I, <laughs> I don't bother uh mainly because well, i've got a six-year-old and there just isn't time uh me and him still sleep in the same bed that sort of thing and him telling me to go to bed at half eight when am i going to uh another thing was that i noticed mid-30s two pints of beer and i'm already getting the hangover by 10 o'clock and i just think what is the point of doing this so i just stopped by progression i was never really a heavy drinker compared to the people around me but now i just don't bother yeah it's all relative i guess yeah so you know, in terms of the language you've used, you've described it as like prison-esque essentially and talked about a lot of the sort of gnarlier end of the lifestyle. Why stay for 20 years? Because it's an outrageously entertaining and adventurous way to live your life to a certain point. So I would say to anybody going to sea, if you're still at sea 10 years after you first start, to have a, from from experience, to have a good look at what's going on at home. And if you're not married, no family, no, you've got a house that you just live in because you need some place for the bank or whatever, then your life is floating. And it's really not good 10 years after that. You just, it's difficult to explain but it's really difficult to, to leave the sea and get a job ashore. Uh, so many things happen on ships and just in, in general ashore when you're a seafarer that you really couldn't. I'll give you, I'll give you a story. Uh, we went to Busan in South Korea and the ship was getting laid up. Uh, it was getting pulled onto the docks, uh, into the dry docks, which means that the water's taken out from around it and it's sitting on blocks. It's a massive uh, uh, Panamax bulker. And we were told by the Koreans we couldn't go ashore. So the captain, I can't remember his name, we'll not say his name anyway, says, nah, fuck him, we're going ashore. So the whole lot of us went over the wall <laughs> in the harbour, led by the captain of the ship. Now, I, I think I, I was chief or set, I can't remember, third engineer, whatever. But my wife was with us. We got married at sea. And we got to the first bar, and it was a classic hoor uh, bar. Uh, so the mama-san greeted us all in. And then she saw Margaret, my wife, and she says, who's the lady? Because she wasn't Korean, so was, if she'd been Korean, the girl wouldn't have come in for just politics. So 
we're sitting there having outrageously beautiful food. There was lots of beer, wine, whiskey. And because it was a whore bar, I had a girl sitting next to me, who was my whore, if you like, and my wife had her whore. And we all had a girl sitting next to us to look after us. That was the rules of the place. And what I found was I was sitting in silence with my girl, if you like, my wife and her girl having a conversation about makeup while I sat with my arms folded, just <laughs> looking back and forward between them. And I, I even then I'm sitting there thinking, this is absolutely, I wish technology, I could GoPro it and put it into context because I was sitting next to a girl, a Korean girl, like, as you can imagine, short skirt, not wearing very much. And Margaret, my wife, had the same girl next to her. And they were just having like three girls conversation about makeup and what's it like in the UK and what's it like there and how do you do that? It was just a little thing like that. How do you replicate that in the, re in the real world? Even talking about whores and whore bars, it's like totally unacceptable. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of people right now who've sat back and gone, what, what? the hell? But yeah, that, yeah. That, that was just normal practice. If you put put shipping into context and think to yourself, okay, where are, where are the ships coming in? So take Los Angeles as a random example. Where you dock in Los Angeles, you're surrounded by the worst part of the city. You go to the Philippines, you go to Indonesia, you go to India, you go to Bangladesh, you go to South Africa. When your ships come in, the land around you is the worst part of the cities. So the first thing you're going to get is sailors' bars, a sailors' pub designed for seafarers of every nationality. And it's not the place you would go with, a, with your family on a Sunday afternoon for, for lunch, you know what I mean? And that's, that's the world you live. I don't even know if the world exists anymore in the same way. But when I was at sea, that was... Now, I spent most of my seafaring life with my wife on board. Uh, so it was slightly different for me. And again, by having the mountains and not not knocking it back with the alcohol on a, on a daily basis. It's why I managed to leave successfully and not become totally, well, not not not, not to die of cirrhosis, yellow-eyed in my house alone someplace, because that's, that's pretty much how most seafarers of my generation finish their days. Uh, shaky hands, yellow eyes, and just lost causes, basically. That's... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and... You know, it sounds obviously gritty, about as gritty as it gets, but to what extent was that part of the draw? It's not gritty. It really isn't. The ships are nice. The The food's good, especially if you get a good cook, They're usually usually Indonesian or some Far East. It's not gritty. It really isn't. It's, it's a lifestyle, and that's the way it is. You get used to being at sea for 20 days, and when you do go ashore, you go into the nearest pub, get tanked, and come back. Now, because I was, that, that's, that's, that's a classic seafarer. You walk into the nearest pub, never mind getting a taxi someplace nice. Because I had my wife aboard, like we're in Los Angeles, was it Los Angeles, I remember it was, like this is Los Angeles, Hollywood Boulevard, let's go. We're getting a taxi, boom, and we went, like proper. And being Scottish, the price is just, no, you're not unacceptable. And uh, thankfully, we didn't buy anything. But nobody else from the ship made it past the first bar. Uh, South Africa, we went on a, on a safari. And that was great because a genuine monkey's head pulled it off and Putin was in it. You know what I mean? That wasn't monkey's brains the same as you got in Indiana Jones. But it was a monkey's head, pulled it off. And that was your Putin was in this like proper head. 
Nobody else in the ship got past the first bar, and that was in Richards Bay in South Africa. And that's, that's standard, standard practice. There's no reason to, to go any further. You become very jaded. It's a bit, I suppose it'd be a bit like a policeman who's done too many Saturday nights in our city. They would tend to view the world as they're seeing on a daily, a weekly basis. As a seafarer, you tend to view the world, you can tend to view the world through the bad places you've been to because you never get past them to the nice places. But it's an opportunity to see. That's... Yeah, and it's like you say about being institutionalised because, you know, we've just spent two weeks on an island and you're not asking personal questions, even though... We could spend two years on the island and I wouldn't, I wouldn't get to the stage of asking personal questions. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and ask you all the personal questions now. <laughs> but in the same token, you sit in silence and not say anything, but listen. Watch, observe, listen. You will hear everything you need to know about people by just sitting, saying nothing. And that was one of the biggest tricks I had, if you like, when I joined a new ship. Because you join the new ship, people have been on it a few months, whatever, they might have sailed regularly on it. They all know each other. Well, they certainly know each other because they've been there together. And rather than go aboard the ship and say, blah, 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 I would join and for the first week, I pretty much would say nothing unless I had to. And you learn all you need to know about the people on the ship. Yeah, you get them all worked out quickly. Very quickly. But it's I mean, it's very different because of the nature of the work and stuff. But you know, we didn't know each other two weeks ago. We'd met for a day or whatever, and yeah, you know, we've got to we've got a job to do that requires us all to get on and make friends. And it's yeah, lots of people live their lives in that way. Well, do they, or am I just part of an echo chamber? No, no, no. You, <laughs> if you view a ship or a prison, or a hospital, or any place where people spend an extended period. There's the rules, and then there's the grey areas. And the grey areas is what define people. It's how you circumnavigate the grey areas. I mean, I'm sure a prison has the same sort of grey area rules in a different context to a ship. Long-term patients in a hospital will have the same sort of grey areas and what you can do get away with and what you say and what you don't it, and all three only take one person in the mix and if they're an arse the whole job is a nightmare going into the bar on a ship hoping that a certain person's not going to be there turning the corner and there they are holding court and half a dozen people looking at them just eyes just waiting for them to go to bed that's not great, it just takes one. And our time on OE, if one person out of the group had been like an arse, it would have had a knock-on effect to the whole the whole production, if you like. Yeah, well, it's quite a worrying thing because um, what's the old saying? Like, if you can't see who the arse is in the group, it's you. And this has been quite a good trip, so I'm kind of worried. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's over now. We've got away with it. <laughs> you got away with that, That's very true, yeah. Yeah. Um so you know we've we've spoken a bit off camera and hung out for a while as well and touched on stuff that goes well stuff that doesn't go well. If you would be happy to can you tell us some of the stuff that doesn't go well at sea and and what it's chronic depression. Chronic depression is Nowadays with social media, the way to cure depression is to post something on your Facebook wall to say, 
be aware, which doesn't make a blind bit of difference to anybody. It's great that we're all getting sort of into that sort of social media, but depression is not what you think it is. And seafarers and ships are full of them. So joining a ship for a second time, expecting to see someone that you know should be coming back with you, and you find that they've topped themselves on their leave, is depressingly common. And this is 20, 25, whatever, 30 years ago. Uh, that was really common. Uh, killing yourself with alcohol is incredibly common. So you find that you, you didn't have many friends. I mean, I'm not in contact with, I'm in contact with, it, with no one, pretty much. The odd post on Facebook where someone posts up something. But I don't have any seafaring friends because they were called Department of Transport acquaintances. That's what you would call someone on a ship. It was a Department of Transport, Department of Transport being the UK, uh, acquaintance. They weren't friends. And it was very rare because of what we talked about. You would get to know people. So it was a transitory lifestyle. And people not being there because it all got too much for them or their life in general was really quite common. People getting killed and injured on the ship was reasonably common as well. Not so much killed, but certainly losing a finger or losing a hand or losing part of the leg or... <sighs> yeah, there was moments where, where you thought, well, this isn't great. <laughs> but those were few and far between. And out of 20 years, like 15 years deep sea, I can only remember the good parts, like the really good parts. I don't remember the 26 days crossing the Atlantic, or sorry, crossing the Pacific, and doing the same thing every single day, and the, the flour running out so there's no more bread, and the milk going from fresh milk two days later going to UHT, and then it running out and you're into the powdered milk. And these are like sequence of events. If you know you're onto the powdered milk, the crew, the, the cook makes up a jug of powdered milk in the morning, you know you're 20 days from land. Like, travel's from, you've got another 10 days to go. You also know what day of the week it is, especially with British crew, because they cook the same thing, or they did. So Monday, Friday was always fish. A nod of the head to any Catholic on board, but that, that was fish on Friday. So you know what day of the week it was by what food you had. You know what I mean? It was. It's difficult to pick out moments or events. There's just loads of things that would never happen. I, mean, I was arrested in South Africa uh, for being in the, <laughs> in the wrong part of the airport at the wrong time uh, and ended up spending... 36 hours in a hotel next to the airport and it was like an extended holiday and because I wasn't home I was being paid three days wages for every day that I was there and it was my fault that I didn't catch the plane because I had a few scoops as you do and it was, it was what's called a silent airport so it was just silence, so I just kept drinking, just sitting there waiting. They'll call me when I'm ready. And my plane had lifted off. I actually saw it take off, and I thought, there's not a plane going. I wonder where mine going. And, uh, yeah, so things you can't replicate today. Just 9-11 made a big difference as well, because when you're, when you're prior to 9-11, airports were a lot more relaxed. So you could turn up having had a few scoops. You could turn up reasonably late. 
you could carry pretty much everything onto the plane you wanted. I mean, I can remember doing an internal flight in India and the guy next to me had a fridge on the seat next to him. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that, that was his carry-on. <laughs> I don't know where he was going to put it if there was someone next to him. Whereas nowadays, with nine, post 9-11, I mean, there's no humour in flying. I mean, if you're a group of seafarers joining a ship, or leaving a ship especially, it got messy on the flight. Really messy. And I'm sure the stewardesses were just ploughing us with spirits to get us to sleep to make their life easier. Whereas you can't... You, it, nowadays, flying and travelling is a lot more stressful. It wasn't 20 years ago. So the antics that you got up to, you couldn't do anymore. Do you look back at it fondly? I look back and wish, not so much now, but certainly for a few years after I left the sea, I wish that I could have a big ship's engine room, and this is a colossal plant. I mean, a big ship's engine, a two-stroke reciprocating uh, engine, will be, I don't know, 80 metres long? It's huge, and it's two storeys, three storeys high. It's a colossal A-frame. And all the auxiliaries that go into that, so a ship doesn't burn diesel. It gets boiler oil or black oil, like really thick, tarry stuff, and it's got lots of stones and seawater and freshwater and contaminants in it, so as part of the, like a fourth engineer normally looks after the purifier clarifier system so he or she is taking that this really shit oil black stuff and making it into the the stuff that could be burnt in an engine so that's the plant has got a lot got to produce your own fresh water make your own electricity it's all big bits of machinery that you need to have and looking after the whole plant and the job is a logistical perfection if you can get the job taken over like a sweetie then you can have a great trip. If you can't get the job taken over, or the people that are with you don't know what they're doing, and in the last few years that's kind of what, what was going on, then it's a bit of a work up the whole time, and it, it doesn't really work. So if I could get a big ship's engine room and all the auxiliaries ashore, and just look after it for no reason whatsoever, for a long time I would have been happy. Yeah, just to keep the prop going on or whatever the big engine was for. I suppose a huge diesel-powered uh, electricity-producing power station, that's what I was looking for, power station, would be similar. Uh, it's not producing its own water or its own electricity. Well, it's producing its own electricity. It's not, it, there's a lot of things missing. But that would be the closest. So a lot of ships engineers, when they, they turn shore, get jobs in power stations. Well, they used to anyway when it was diesel. Uh, that was the nearest thing. Because a large engine has only one purpose, and that's to turn the shaft slowly. And the end of that shaft's a prop. Uh, it doesn't really have much of a purpose ashore. Yeah. Do I miss the lifestyle? No, not the slightest. No. Not one moment. Also, because I sailed the world... I've got no desire to travel. I've got no reason to travel anywhere. I've got everything I need to be happy within an hour's drive of where we are now in the Rosses. So, for example, going to Yosemite to climb El Cap, no, doesn't even flicker. Going, I don't know, to visit Eiffel Tower, no, nothing. I've got no interest in traveling. Kind of seen, not everything, but enough. I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. 
it seems a very alien concept to me, but I'm 30 years old and I've got itchy feet. No, I'm the opposite. I've 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 come through that, and yeah, I've got no reason to leave. Uh, not no reason to leave, but no nothing I want to go and do. Yeah, and that could be a, that could be said to be apathy or a bad thing, but it's not. It's because I've kind of done it. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing. I kind of envy the I've found home sentiment, even though it's not necessarily home. Yeah, you found some place where everything aligns, and once you found some place everything aligns then everything outside of your alignment falls into place. If you don't find that inner alignment, then the external alignment's never going to happen. So it's, I mean, moving to Donegal is a different country, not being Irish. So it took me a wee while to, to, to kind of settle in. And now that I have settled in, yeah, it's home. Yeah, home enough. Yeah, more than enough. <laughs> So, when did you decide to leave? The sea? Yeah. Well, I worked for Orkney Ferries. That's internal on boats. And my then wife decided she wanted to come home. Home being Donegal. So, we moved to Donegal. And I did another couple of trips in Angola. And then another couple of trips uh, to the North Sea. But I realised on the, on those trips with two different companies, I had left the sea. I was, I was just, I was, I was, I was now a second engineer, not a chief engineer. And I'm not going to say everything was too easy for me, but I could have done it and left my head at home and just turned up with a, a torso and still did the job. So there was no challenges left. There was nothing to get excited about. There was nothing new or entertaining. I suppose joining the ship for the first time in Angola was a bit of an eye-opener, really poor country, civil war, 30 years, a million people lost and nobody even knows how many. And you're traveling through that city where it all happened. And that was quite, yeah, it was just another thing that just led me to believe that this is not for me. So when I moved to Donegal, then I was in a different country. It's not Scotland. And I kind of thought, I don't really want to be here. Uh, found the sea stacks they popped up quite without actually realising and then the more I investigated the more I realised there was more and more and more and over time just became home didn't try and make it home and it wasn't home when I got here but it became home Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So can you go into why you came here? Oh, it's simple because my ex-wife wanted to come home. <laughs> so her, she lives up the road, just 10 minutes up the road on, a, on like a family island with her parents and her dad's parents, uh, our dad's brother and his family and that's why we're here 
that's why that's why I came here. Uh, it just so happens that I I'd left Orkney and came to Donegal. Now Orkney has got sea stacks, and yes, they're all been climbed, apart from one out in Westry, which obviously climbed it. But I started a website and I started to explore the sea stacks in Orkney, and I found there was quite a lot of unclimbed rock there, and just did well to get lots of new routes and explore. And it was the it was the the beginnings. And then when I moved to Donegal, it was like I'd gone from a place that might have had a couple of lifetimes of unclimbed rock to a place, not even a couple, maybe one lifetime of unclimbed rock for one person, maybe two, to a place that's got, I don't, infinite's not a word I'm, I would throw about lightly, but certainly for this lifetime, I'm never going to run out of, of classic lines to get the first ascents of and therefore explore and just have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, you've got islands, you've got mountain crags, the whole lot, but the, the exploration of the two places, there can't be many climbers ever in the history of the act of the sport or activity that has so much untapped potential in the two main places they've lived. And that's kind of why I'm blessed, going from a place to a place. I mean, that's obviously had a massive impact on your approach to climbing. Yes, we found out over the last couple of days, I'm, I'm, I kind of feel like a, a dinosaur in a way. Uh, the stuff that I'm doing is so is so removed from what the other guys were doing. And I'm not saying dinosaur in a bad way, but just I'd never seen, I'd seen people in climbing walls climbing hard through roofs and stuff, but I'd never seen guys and girls climbing through roofs like they always did on trad gear. And Connor, he's the strongest man I've ever met. I mean, the stuff he was pulling on and that was very humbling. And it was, it was mind-blowing for me to see it. And then just discussions, mainly with Michelle, because we're climbing together, her approach and my approach are so far removed that, yeah. You're almost not doing the same thing. It's not the same sport. No, it's, 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 it's like indoor climbing and outdoor climbing. Certainly, they've parted company quite a while ago. But even trad climbing, I mean... Nothing wrong with what either of us are doing, but Michelle abseils down a route, checks holds, does checks gear placements, and does all that prep, and she's climbing exceptionally hard. Whereas I get to the base of a route, look up it, and think, yeah, should be able to do it, get on it. And if I can't, I just back off. Abseiling down a route to clean it. Up till last week, I would have said, no, what's the point? I totally get the point. Will I start doing it? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. So what is your approach? Find a piece of rock, be it whatever, a sea cliff or a sea stack, but probably sea, cliff, sea stacks. Uh, have a paddle around it a few times or look at it from the cliff tops. If I find what I suspect is an unclimbed sea stack, the ideal unclimbed sea stack is the first time you find it and go and look at it from the cliff tops. You look down and you get that horrendous feeling of malaise, that's just that horrible feeling in your stomach because you look down and you think, that'll never be climbed. And you go home and it starts to annoy you, you go back and have a look. And then when you realise, oh, well, maybe, maybe, then you go back at different tight states, different sea states, just to get the approach wired. And then you paddle around it, maybe once, and then you do it. So I think because sea stacks, you can't really... 
if it's unclimbed, get on top of it to abseil down to clean it. Because <laughs> you've got to get on top of it. So the general, my general approach is to find a new sea stack, what I think is an unclimbed one, and get on top of it by the easiest way. And if there's a, if there's a scramble up the one on the side, that's what I do. I scramble up. I really couldn't care less about the rock climbing. It's just, it's like this, it's like paddling out to it. It's just a means of transportation. Get on top of it. And if it's got potential for like proper climbing, or if I've done a route to get on top harder climbing, then I take note of it and it goes into the to-do, the to-do list. But it's it's a B to-do list. It's not an A to-do list. The A to-do list is unclimbed stacks. The B to-do list is new routes on previously climbed stacks. And then the C list is pretty much everything else. So that's the approach. Whereas the approach I've seen these guys doing in the last couple of days is just entirely different, with good reason, because they're climbing exceptionally, in my opinion, just outrageously hard routes. And would you do that on on-site lead? You would have to be an immortal to get away with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So with the C stacks, and I'm going to say this deliberately. There can't be that many sea stacks off the west coast of Ireland. Like when I picture, you know, I've never been here, but I've seen a bit of the coastline. You know, I know about the old man of Hoy in Scotland and the old man of Store and these stacks. So I, what are there three? <laughs> you know, in Scotland, if you take all the sea stacks in Scotland, and for argument's sake, we'll say a hundred, but that's just a random number. Take that hundred sea stacks in Scotland. That's what we've got off the coast of Donegal. It's the entire Scottish collection in one coastline. Uh, is there any more? Yes. So it's just a case of getting them done. I was I was I was at Pleasure Brennan, and I was doing my MIA training, and one of the the trainers said to me, because I introduced myself as Ian Miller, I'd climb a lot of sea stacks, and she said to me, "Well, you must have done them all by now." And I, I said, no, I didn't elaborate. I just thought to myself, I just, that's a very poor attitude. Because I thought everybody climbed them. Uh, no, there's there's an infinite amount off the Donegal, just endless, over 100. But that's what I thought. I thought, oh, you want to do the first ascent of sea stacks. You said to me, when we were here on the recce for this trip, you said, um... I'll only leave Ireland once I've climbed all of the sea stacks that there are to do. And I'll never do that. And you'll I'll never... never get to an end of it. So I'm here for the duration. <laughs> How many have you done? Uh, I've done the first. I've done the first ascent of over a hundred sea stacks. How many of them are of technical rock climbing interest? I don't care. Getting to the like, for example, seven kilometres off the coast of where we're sitting now is the brothers, three, six metre, if you like, seven, eight metre high, spikes of rock, seven kilometres from land. So a few years ago, paddled out to them, got on top. Bit of a, bit of a, an online debacle ensued because I put a YouTube video online flying a drone off them, and it was quite a nice video, it was a nice day, and all that sort of thing. And a number of sea kayakers got very hot under the collar that I was claiming the first landing of these things and they didn't say that in any way shape or form all I said was stood on the brothers today and somebody had touched them from a sea kayak and said that, that they'd landed on them 
and then somebody else says they got a foot out the sea kayak and touched it with it, all that sort of stuff. Technically, the sea passage out is what it's all about in that case. Is it of technical rock climbing interest to somebody else? No, definitely not. But if you can stand in a place between dropping your son off at school and picking them up and have that feeling of absolute isolation because you're so far from anywhere. Another little thing is that when I when I go off climbing my own, I, I don't tell MD where I'm going. I don't tell MD what I'm doing. And until the event of an iPhone, I never carried any means of communication because to solo something, you had to be totally on your own. On your own. If you're soloing something or saying you're soloing something and you've got any means that you can at your disposal to sort yourself out, somebody could throw you a rope or abseil down to you or anything at all like that, then it's not truly a solo because you're not on your own. So going out to these islands and stacks and stuff, another reason not telling them is because I might change my plan. And if I've told somebody where I'm going, panic and the, the rescue authorities will ever go out to that place and I'm not there. So so when you're sat in the pub and you say that to somebody and they tell you that it's irresponsible, what's your response? If I was if I was to go hill walking and I was to take a group of people up a hill, say 20 people and me, 21 people in total, then I've got 21 times two ankles to break. If I go on my own, I've only got my own ankles to break. So by the laws of averages, I'm much more likely to have a mishap the more people I have. And the other argument to the side of that is, yeah, but if something happens, then the people with you can form a rescue. But that's only if the people you're with know what they're doing. And the amount of people that know what they're doing when you combine sea stack climbing, kayaking, swimming, snorkeling, and all the other things that you need to know about and potentially do, then there's not many. So what I found was that taking or being with other people, yes, there's people who know a lot about climbing. There's people who know a lot about the sea. There's people who know a lot about the individual components. But if things go wrong, there's very few people that know enough to effectively form a rescue. So being on my own is actually a really good safeguard because it's only me. Now, what that causes is a type of emotional state in which every action has a complete and utter opposite reaction. So I spend most of my life on my own doing this, just the underside of terrified, because if I'm not scared, then I'm complacent. And if I'm complacent, I'm going to die. So being scared, in my opinion, is the... It's an essential, it's like knowing how to tie in or put a harness on or any other of these skills. Being scared and being able to deal with fear and keep yourself in the good fear and out of the bad fear is a mindset that you only get after years of experience of doing something. Your comfort zone expands, but as your comfort zone expands, the bigger your comfort zone is, the closer you are to madness. It's pretty simple. You've got people who do things in their own, like wingsuit base jumpers. In my opinion, it's only an opinion, madness. But I don't do that activity. I haven't been doing it for 20 years. I haven't increased my skill set 
to the point where I can do these amazing things. So when someone sees me, perhaps, in a little dinghy doing whatever, then the first, first thing is, that guy's a fucking idiot. He's an idiot. Yeah? And they're right, because in their head, they can't do what I'm doing. Why? Because they haven't been doing it for a long time. They're not seeing... <laughs> I'm pretty fanatical when it comes to the logistics. They're not seeing the months of worry, the months of planning, waiting for that right moment to go and do something. People just see the immediate and they always have opinions based on their own experiences. And I think that often, the more I talk to people who do the sorts of things that you do, well, I've never met anybody who does the things that you do, um, the more you realise, I've certainly realised that lots of people plan things for a weekend six months ahead. So they're going to go and try X, Y or Z on the 2nd of July and they decide that on New Year's Day. It sounds like what you're doing is you're waking up in the morning or going to bed at night and looking at the wave, uh, sorry, the, the tide forecast and things like that and what the wind's doing and then you're making a decision about what to do tomorrow. Well, put it in a much, much more real, I've, I've got a, a couple this afternoon they want to go and climb a sea stack and I haven't really said what we're going to do until last night. And I've got another guy tomorrow on Saturday that he thought he was going on Sunday, but I've said to him by text, needs to be Saturday morning. For, for, and he's not got back to me, why, why, why? He's just said, right, see you then. <laughs> the sea doesn't care what we're going to do. Uh, the weather is not going to play ball just because. So it's 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 very last minute. It's like winter climbing in Scotland. I was I was up in Scotland a few years ago doing a, a winter ML and I'm walking about navigating and I come across a cliff and there's a couple of guys standing at the base of it and they called me over. This is like in the Cairngorms and they said, are you a climber? I said, well, I've done a bit of climbing and they said, is this route such and such? And I looked up at this completely blank, dry, sudden, warmed piece of cliff and they were looking for an ice fall. And I says, yeah, well, that's where it comes down. See the seep? And they were getting ready to climb it because they'd had one weekend a year to be in Scotland in winter. And this is the grade four they wanted to do. There was no ice pretty much anywhere in the Cairngorms and they were getting ready to go and climb. So I'm, I'm slightly different in that I've got an awful lot of time in which if it's not going to work, I'll do it when it works. So an awful lot of people that, I'm going to say live in the real world, but have proper jobs and stuff, they don't have the flexibility of time. And that's that's absolutely essential. Because if you do if you do potentially dangerous things because you're there rather than because it's right, then it was Jed, Jed Corliss, but I don't know if it was him that actually came up with it. When you're born, you've got two jars. And one's your luck jar and one's your experience jar. And when you're born, your luck jar's full of marbles and your experience jar's empty. And as you go through life, you take marbles out of the luck jar and put them in the experience jar. Now, as I sit here now, I've got no marbles left in the luck jar, but my experience jar is full, <laughs> and that's what I'm, what that's what I'm using. So I don't, I don't do anything on a whim. I don't do anything without rationalising the consequence. It's very, very anal. It's not cool. It's not sexy. It is a pretty grim reality of. It's not grim. Grim's not the right word, but it's it's a reality in which every single thing that you can control is controlled. So you're not taking a risk, you're controlling a risk. And that's what hopefully 
all people that do adventurous activities is their mindset. If I'm out with, with people who are, are paying me for a day out, I've got quite a simple uh, school of thought is that every single day that I go out to do something, and you guys out in Oi, no, no exception, this is the day that I'm going to have a fatality, either my own or somebody else's. And throughout the course of the day, we haven't had a fatality yet, so this abseils it. This is the abseil that's going to kill somebody. This is the route that's going to kill. This, this is the moment. So you find yourself thinking it's about to happen. First thing you do is you check everything. Helmets, harnesses, ropes, knots, the whole lot. And you find yourself going through a cycle mentally of checking and rechecking and checking. Even people who are not not with you, but are next to you, you find yourself checking them and you see something that's like a moral dilemma. Should I go over and say, look, because let's face it, if you go up to a climber and say, excuse me, eh, blah, 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 the chances are you're going to get told to fuck off. If you were to meet that same person in a supermarket and you walked past them and they were getting their getting their shopping and their kids into their car and you says, excuse me, but that looks like brake fluid under your car. They'd be absolutely delighted. You saved the day. Say to the same person that that block they're using as a belay doesn't look very good and it's, <laughs> it's not the same answer. It's not the same response. But the, the, the analytical approach to not getting into trouble, I actually think it's the reason why I do it. It's, it's, it's getting away with stuff, but it's getting away with stuff using your experience. Luck's not great, yeah? You soon run out of luck. Yeah. And it sounds like you've developed this skill set as well that means that you don't need to push it hard because today's the day. You know, if you want to, you kayak, you climb, you walk, you swim, you snorkel, there's always something to do, right? Yeah, yeah. As loads of times, lots and lots of times, I've went out to do something, found myself in a certain position, and before I know it, I've spent two hours paddling through a tunnel, or going through a cave, or swimming with a seal, or trying to catch up with a basking shark, or just in general, just gadding about. What I originally went out to do is long forgotten. Uh, and that could be because it wasn't going to work for whatever reason, or the wind was just wrong, or the sea was wrong, or just something wasn't quite right, and I'm under no pressure to do it because this time next week, it could be perfect. So, yeah. Yeah. So, can you tell me a bit about um, Oe and the caves and the exploration that you've done? And Oe, it's, 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 like, it's like Donegal in miniature in that it has everything you could want uh, from a climbing point of view and a kayak and sea kayaking point of view. Uh, the caves and the cave systems, I mean, as I said to you before, Oe is, is an anglicised for Uig, and Uig is Irish for cave. Always like Swiss cheese. It's got sea claves running all the way through it. Uh, it's quite possible to, to paddle for a couple of hundred metres underground and pop out someplace else, given the right tide states and all that sort of thing. So from a kayaking point of view, it's endless amount of fun. There's quite a number of... UK-based sea kayakers that have come to Ireland put out YouTube videos and says the best place in the world. To, and these are not my videos, but other people's that have come here. Uh, it also has... There's a, a strange thing that happens that if you watch the sun and you watch what's going on with the sea, you get the sun in the right position, then you get a, 
proper direct sunlight coming into the cave. It's what we did, and you get the pool of light or the blue lagoon effect. There's almost a guaranteed one in Oi, but that happens all over the country. You just have to be in the right place at the right time. So to go into a cave that's got granite walls and roof with the sea illuminating green and all the colours of all the minerals, and you've got purples and greens and oranges and yellows, it's a surreal experience. And that's just the sea kayaking. It's not difficult to, to, to see why it's good. You know what I mean? You discovered that, right? I wouldn't say I discovered it. I was there at the right time. Uh, I'm sure somebody else has seen it before me. So what I did was I made a... I've, I discovered it myself. Didn't discover it in somebody else's bound to have seen it before. Uh, and I made a, a pretty big effort to get back there and record it on the GoPro and the YouTube video and all that sort of thing. Kind of went... I'm going to say it went viral. It was everywhere. It still, still pops up on the US Facebook pages and stuff. It's there's endless amount of things in this part of the world to do it. It's it's very much oi. It's very much like what Scotland would have been in climbing terms fifty years ago. Unclimbed lines, unclimbed easy lines, immaculate rock. And then in Scotland, there's been a lot more development over the last hundred years, whereas in Ireland, there's not so many people here for a start, and there's not so many climbers, and it's just, you wouldn't get this in the UK. I mean, Inish Moore down at Galway is currently being bolted by the, the steely-fingered wads from Sheffield and stuff. Uh, they're across with, with Ricky Bell, and putting up bolted roots on these sea cliffs. And that's only started happening in the last, well, this year. I think Reggie put up a couple of bolts roots over the years. So it's like it's being rediscovered. And a lot of us do with social media. You put up a nice photograph of something, before you know it, there's a dozen photographers down there to, to get the same photograph. Oi, well, Paul Swales and John McCoon, they were the first to, to climb. I mean, they weren't the first to climb there, but they were the first to climb the Holy Jesus Wall. And the photographs of the Holy Jesus Wall with these little figures on it, got put online boom UKC had an article about it and it, it generated a lot of interest that's the reason I'm here yes <laughs> so it's been climbing on Oi since the 90s uh, David Walsh he was the first kayaking character uh, he was out with his mates and they did a few routes in the canyon uh, did routes on Critch uh, local climbing clubs be coming out on an annual basis putting up albeit easier routes below E grade but it was, it just kind of ticked over nicely. Little patches of roots getting put up by various people, nothing to get excited about really. And then, boom, somebody climbed the Holy Jesus Wall. And from that moment, all the people who climb hard, whoa, where's that? And that's what's happened the last couple of years. Now, the thing about Oi is it's an island. There's no regular ferry service. So trying to get out to the island, you're going to need your own kayaks. You, there is a local boatman, but they all have a. If they're about, they'll take you out, and if they're not, you're on your own. So, sea kayaking is the best way to. I mean, a couple of uh, Chloe's going to be, Neil are going to be paddling around the island today in their inflatable kayaks. Going to have a great day outfit. It's absolutely perfect for it. So, being under your own steam just opens more windows. If you get a bit of rain, you're not sitting waiting for it to stop. You jump in your kayaks and go for a paddle. It just opens more, opens more, uh, more things to do. And you've helped some of the locals explore the island more, right? 
Yeah, uh, the boatman Dan, he, he heard wind that we'd been to the end of the lake under the lake. Now on the island, there's a, the water source is the only lake <clears throat> and 50 meters below it is another lake. And you go down a, a sinkhole to a silty beach. Now we were the first, I was with a couple of proper cavers. They put wetsuits on and, and swam and me and my 13 year old Oshin, we got in a, an Aldi's inflatable and paddled the lake under the lake. And Jock and Emma let us go first. So we were the first to paddle, as, as far as we're aware, into this pool of tranquility, this round pool. So you're almost 200 meters from the exit point or the entry point down the shaft and you're in complete and utter darkness in this lake. Now, if you've never been underground to that extent, then you don't understand, I've never experienced darkness. And it's a, a, an incredibly powerful experience because if you could sit there for the rest of your life, your eyes will never adjust because there is no light. So it's ink black. So I can't remember what we're talking. I'm just talking about the cave under the lake, under the lake at the moment. Just taking Dan down. That's it. So Dan heard that sort of... So a couple of weeks later, I think I was in, in Aldi or Lidl and a very, very... And Dan's not usually one to get emotional or excited. Dan came bouncing up to me and says, I heard you've been to the end of the lake, under the lake. And I says, yep. He says, right, it's the only place in the island I haven't been. So I kind of made it a mission. I was taking Dan there. So a month later or so, me and Dan paddled to the end of the lake. And yeah, it was emotional. <laughs> it was good. It was really good. It was one of these experiences that being a guide is why we guide. Because you take people to places they can't get to on their own and they have an experience with you by proxy, if you know what I mean. And that was great. Absolutely fantastic. So how many days of the year are you guiding people around Donegal? I could guide every, the amount of volume of traffic I get in my email and PMs and Facebook and Twitter and all that sort of thing. I could easily be five of me and guide almost every day of the year. Uh, there's so many people wanting to have pr proper adventures. Uh, there's other people in the country and Ireland, obviously, that are, are guiding, if you like, uh, not very many. And there's even fewer who are actually catering for singles and couples to do proper adventurous activities. So I'm kind of snowed under where people want to go out and play, and it's it's great. Uh, but I, I, I do have this... It's a very grey area in that when I'm out with people who are paying me and I'm out on my own, there's not much difference in the day. <laughs> it's not like... I'm in guiding mode and I become a different person. I tend to sell myself as if you come out and play with me, I'm going to be having an adventure too. We're going to do stuff that hopefully I haven't done and let's go and do it. So people know what they're signing up for. 90% of the time it works. And if it doesn't, I can change and do something else and just, it always works 90% of the time. And I just have an enormous amount of fun. It's not, it's, it's, it's guiding in its truest sense in that it's an adventure and a lot of the time I don't know what the outcome's going to be and that's what people want. Uh, a lot of people, especially from the States and, and Canada, they're actually disappointed that I've got a van with stickers on it. <laughs> they think that's just touching the underside of commercial. <laughs> and other times, and this really struck home a, a wee while ago, is an American woman says to me, we're so glad we got you. And about an hour later, I kind of brought it up in conversation. What do, what do you mean by that? And she's always oh, thought it would be one of your staff. And I thought, no, 
it's just me, there is no staff. Uh, and people are actually booking me rather than the experience. And that was quite surreal to realise that people were actually booking the, the person doing it. Because I thought I was just taking people because that's what we wanted to do. It's, it's good. Yeah, and I guess that just stems from the fact that, you know, it's the difference between um, just taking somebody somewhere to keep them alive and giving them an experience, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, it's very obvious to me that what you're doing is you have to keep them alive because that's quite important. Um, but that's like you're doing that in the background secretly without them knowing it. There's there's two components to it, as far as I'm concerned, to a day's out guiding with me. The two rules are that we will have the best day possible given the weather and sea conditions and their abilities. And two, I will do my best to ensure that they don't get killed or injured. That's the two components. There is no other way of describing guiding people. You're giving them a great day out that they can't do on their own and you're keeping them safe. Uh, and to be a good guide, there's a very distinct balance between the soft skills and hard skills. The hard skills, like placing, using rope and all that sort of stuff, you have to be at the top of your game with it. It's just, that is a given. The soft skills take a long time. So I've got a, an analogy in that people are out being guided with me they won't know something's wrong until the very second before they die which means if nobody dies and has that moment the second before it happens I've kept them safe so there's been a few times where things have perhaps started to go pear-shaped and they don't know anything about it because they don't need to know they don't need to know what I'm thinking they don't need to know that I'm starting to get, it's get and that stems back from being a chief engineer I can't let the people below me on the ships see what I'm thinking because it's my job to make the decisions. It's not my job to, what do you think, guys? I don't give a fuck what you think. This is what we're doing, and if it's wrong, it's on me. So the soft skills of being a, a ship's engineer, especially looking after seafarers, not looking after them, but having them as employees and below you in the in the ranking has has made a really good foundation for being a, a guide because the soft skills are incredibly difficult to get and if you're not at the top of your game and you don't have a big comfort zone in the places you're guiding for the alpine guides the alpine guides have got a big comfort zone in the alps i would hope so they can go a lot further in their own heads before they start to think this is not great and it's all it's all part of the, the makeup of being a guide and your 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 background simply getting a qualification or a piece of paper that's so what I mean anybody can get any qualification or a piece of paper learn how to tie in in different ways and show somebody you can do it and you get given your qualification but it's the ability to be able to interact with people when things are not going your way and never to let it be seen what you're actually thinking because in my opinion fear is trans is transferred from people to people it's like it's like a virus so if you've got a couple of people for example on a sea stack and they've never climbed before they're having it 
and they're getting a wee bit scared. If they see that you're scared, a lot of the time they've got nothing to hold on to mentally and the wheels come off. And there's two types of fear. There's the good fear that keeps us thinking and observant. And then there's a the bad fear, which is terror beyond good fear. And once you terrify someone, you can't get them back. They can become unoperational. You can't get them back into the good fear because everything is now unsafe. So you've, you've terrified them. And that's a really shit guide that terrifies people because that's not what people pay for. Yeah, and it's gonna. There's a the little cliche in here, but it sounds like the way you speak about it, your your opinions and your approach have been seriously impacted by the things you've seen at sea. Yeah, and it's the whole like it's the, it's the cheesy cliche of I've seen things. You know, it's that you the way you speak about it and just listening to you. You've obviously experienced things that most people will never experience and wouldn't want to experience and no. will never understand. Both good and bad. And it's very, very easy. And a lot of people do it. They dwell on the negatives. But if you dwell on the negatives, your outlook is always going to be negative. So what you do is, and it takes, it takes maybe a, a certain age, a certain age you have to get to, to gain enough life experiences to realise that you can cherry pick the good bits and you're always learning. I've learned so much from everybody in the last two weeks. I mean, everybody. I've watched and seen and heard people saying and doing things that I've thought, that's a good wee, good wee tip, thing to do there. So you learn from everybody. And if you take it a step further, that everybody you meet, you meet for a reason. So what I do is I look for the reason why I've met someone. I'm constantly waiting for that moment where I think, ah, there's the reason why I'm here. This is the reason why I'm standing here now at this particular moment in time. And even, for example, standing in a supermarket, for example, and behind you, there's a couple of people having a conversation. If you can hear that conversation, you can hear it for a reason. So you listen to it. You're not listening to what they're saying, but you're listening for the reason why you're hearing it. And the amount of stuff that pops up during these abstract moments, if you're looking for them, kind of guide you as to what you should and shouldn't be doing. Do you think you're a spiritual person? No. You put a label on something. A spiritual person normally is, is a vegan uh, and they've got really strong opinions about everything and the first thing they'll tell you is, I'm a spiritual person. I think myself, really. No. I've got open eyes. I don't to put a label on something and give it a name then people want to be that without becoming that and you just we're all individuals and it's what it's how you it's how you perceive things based on your experiences I wouldn't say spiritual it sounds awful how would you describe it it's an awareness you're aware of things and you're I'll give you an example. Somebody, somebody passes a qualification and they become something. I don't know, a lawyer or a barrister or something, but it could be anything. Or somebody gets promoted in the police force. Or, and once they reach a certain station in life, you can look down on others because you're higher up, getting paid more, got greater responsibility, so therefore you're better. And you look down on others. And when you look down on others, then... Do you value and listen to their opinions or do you dismiss them and tell them what you want them to do? 
if you if you're aware of everything around you everything and anything can give you I'm going to use the word message you'll get that message if you're if you're looking for it and that can come from anywhere it's not going to come from a peer because pretty much when you're ill you're ill and how much money you've made and what qualifications you have and what power you had when you were well don't really <laughs> bode well for your future so I think guess you talk about cliches you, you just you treat everybody equally because you never ever know what they're going to say or do next that, that's great I love that <laughs> so can you this is an odd question but can you sell me your lifestyle it's pretty simple I'm living the dream I'm living my dream I'm doing something that you wouldn't think was possible because I'm doing whatever I want whenever I want which doesn't mean I'm doing anything outrageous I'm simply having as much fun as possible and I've I've kind of molded my lifestyle to allow me to have because I've realized that something is much more important than money and that is time so I've got time to do stuff uh, and anybody can have any lifestyle they want if they just work towards it not to take people's advice or everyone's advice if you ask someone's advice you will get advice but more often than not you will get why it won't work for them or why it will work for them which doesn't mean it's going to work for you so you listen to people's advice and you filter it but you always have in your head this is what I'm going to do and my, my goal was to be a full time I'm not going to say climber because that that would indicate that I'm a very good climber a full time just have fun I'm going to say, yeah I'm going to say something that I I, I hate the term explorer or adventurer I, yeah I hate it or extreme yeah yeah, yeah 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 so this is going to really wind you up because I don't think I think you are a climber by function I think you you go climbing because it takes you places you're also a kayaker because it takes you places in the same way you're a van driver because that gets you to the edge of the shore I actually think you're an explorer because yeah why am I thinking of a guy with a big beard and snow in his face sitting in a tent in the Antarctic yeah okay yeah a, mo a modern within a very narrow corridor I mean the corridor is just over there it's the coast of this it's very. Does that matter? No, no, no. It's as someone said on Facebook. It, we could have micro adventures. So I'm I'm going out and doing most of my stuff. Like I say, between drop off and pick up for school. And it's yeah, you're exploring. I do like I said like I said before. I use climbing and kayaking and abseiling as just means of transportation, a means to get from A to B. So being being quite competent at climbing, uh, being quite competent at kayaking are two components you need to have. Don't specialise in either of them because if you specialise, as someone said to me, you can't you can't be you can't climb sea snacks because we're not sea we're not we're not kayakers, we're climbers. And that kind of narrows you down to a very narrow 
a very narrow window and you're eventually going to get fed up climbing the whole time. So having lots of skills makes it a lot better. Yeah. So why, you know, you've sort of, you've kind of explained why you do it, but it sounds like there was an element of total like serendipity in moving to Ireland because your wife was from here. But it sounds like you've really landed in a place that suits you. It's extremely cliched, and as I'm going to say it, I'm cringing, but everything happens for a reason. I have a strong view that there's no such thing as coincidence. The word coincidence doesn't exist. Everything happens for a reason. And if you're, as I say, aware and listening and watching for little signs, you will follow what you're supposed to be doing. You'll find that if you go off what you're supposed to be doing, and say, for example, I, I went back to university to do another degree or to do a degree in something, and it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing, then the path become more and more difficult to the point where I can't do it. Whereas when it comes to what I'm doing now, I'm going to say it's been incredibly easy. And it has. There's been no real difficult points to becoming a full-time guide and doing this for a living because it was meant to be. That makes me think talking to you about this. <laughs> but... um. What are you looking for by going out and doing what you do? Ah, it's pretty simple. I'm looking for a moment in time which cannot be ever replicated again. So, swimming with basking sharks, coming within 20 foot of an orca, touching a bull selkie just before it tries to bite you because you're too close to its family. Uh, these are watching a, a, a fulmer being born at your feet and it's they're ground nesters. Uh, these are moments in time that you can't replicate and you never know when you're going to get that moment. There's a thing, people say that you're living in the moment and that's what I'm doing or that's what people do when they do adventure activities and that's not true because if you live in the moment, if you live in the absolute moment, that means that all you have is a, a finite second, half second in time. Everything that's happened prior to that is the past and everything that happens post that is the future. If you live in the moment you have no past or future so your consequences of what you're doing have no outcome. So when people say I'm living in the moment or you're living in the moment I'm not. You don't because if you live in the moment you couldn't care less what you do because you don't have a future you're living in that particular second in time. If that makes sense It does. So what I do is I keep saying I'm looking for that particular second in time that will never be replicated. And that's difficult to define because it might be coming face to face with an orca while swimming. Or it might be, I don't know, the northern lights at a particular moment in time that you weren't expecting. It's just, that's what I'm looking for. And finding it regularly? Yes. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> but that that's, it's not, it's not, it's not a random coincidence that I am. It's something I've worked towards, either consciously or subconsciously, to allow me to have this lifestyle. It doesn't happen over five minutes. No, not at all. You never know. People think they do, but nobody knows what's about to happen. You have no comprehension of what's going to happen in the next half second. We think we do, but we don't. So at any moment, in any given time, 
you something could happen something could be said to you could get a piece of information you don't know so every single second you have you use wisely if that makes sense at any moment it can be removed from you in any given way so me personally I try and make the best of every set of circumstances and use every second wisely which means every minute is used wisely, every hour is used wisely, every day is used wisely.